Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark? Mark chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have declared who Jesus is. We thank you that you prophesied in the Old Testament that a messenger would prepare the way. We thank you that we have the rest of the story, the rest of the message. We thank you for your messengers back then and your messengers today. May your message continue to go forth to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The beginning. We often think of, uh, well, I mean, we sometimes say or sing, you know, the beginning is a very good place to start. Um, we think of the beginning, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. The beginning of time, there was God. Pastor John mentioned uh, John 1. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the beginning of time... Jesus already was. Mark could have gone back to the birth of Christ. He could have gone back to Genesis 1. He could have gone back to Genesis 3 when we have that foreshadowing of the coming one who would crush Satan and, uh, and give Adam and Eve's descendants a solution. But Mark doesn't go 30 years or thousands of years. He goes back 700 years to Isaiah 
and about 400 years to Malachi. Isaiah was about 100 years before the Jews went into captivity. Malachi was about 100 years after they came back. And he quotes those passages that talk about one who is coming. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The beginning of the gospel. What is gospel? Good news. We know that one. This word gospel in this time was not an uncommon word. It was a word of, of proclamation, of announcement. This word was used of the birth of an emperor. <clears throat> Excuse me of the coronation of a king. We talked about calendars. I don't even remember, so I don't count on you remembering a sermon before, and how the calendars reset in the Roman world every time an emperor was born. But this is not an announcement of a Roman emperor. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The King is coming. Truly an historic event that changes everything. It's a whole new situation in the world. Last week, Brent asked us to look for three things as we read through the book of Mark. What did Jesus say? Now, Jesus didn't say anything in these eight verses. What did Jesus do? Jesus doesn't act in these eight verses. What is the kingdom of God? And we get a foreshadowing here because the king is coming, but we'll have to get a little further to get more about this kingdom. But I would add a fourth thing for us to look at for in this book. I think even maybe more important than the first three, and that is, who is Jesus? This is all through the book. Um, <clears throat> I had a previous opportunity to talk about the Trinity, and some of you might remember I said, but look at the time. But since we're still in verse 1, I guess uh, I can't use that one. Um, let's have a short refresher on the Trinity. This is from our statement of faith. We believe there is one God, eternal, creator, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, existing eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and one in nature, attributes, power, and glory. Now, I think we all know what these words mean. Eternal, no beginning, no end. Creator, that one's pretty obvious. Omnipotent. Now, anytime we get past three or into four syllables, people struggle, but um, all-powerful, 
omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere, existing eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm going to settle for, I believe it, I can't explain it. And one in nature, attributes, power, and glory. All three persons are God. Okay, next slide, keep going. God the Father. The Father is the executive head residing at the throne of heaven. He is working all events of the universe, past, present, and future, to the fulfillment of his plans and purposes. God the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ was begotten by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and that he is both fully God and fully man. God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a divine person, equal with God the Father and God the Son, that he was active in creation, that he convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that he is the agent in the new birth, that he baptizes all believers into the body of Christ at conversion, that he indwells, seals, endows, guides, teaches, witnesses, sanctifies, and helps the believer. To put it another way, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Reading through Mark, I found almost 90 references, 90 verses that tell us something about God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he is like, what he does, what he says for us to do. This shouldn't be surprising. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God of God. Mark knew who he was talking about. He knew what he was talking about. As Brent reminded us last week, we believe Mark was a young man who grew up in the middle of this thing called, what was it called? You know, it, people didn't know what was going on. The early church Mark is there. He's probably the streaker in chapter 14, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> Peter came to his house when the angel busted him out of prison in Acts 12. He became a missionary with Paul and Barnabas. He bailed on him. Paul went Give him a second chance. Later, we remember, Paul said, please send Mark. He's valuable to me. Tradition says he was Peter's interpreter, and early church fathers say he wrote down what Peter said. Mark almost certainly saw Jesus, and he was discipled by the apostles. 
Now you might ask, why did I put in those probably's and uh, almost certainly's? How many of you in this room are named John? And there's one up there you can't see. Um, how many are named Mark? Now you could. This could be a middle name too. You could. I'll give you another chance. You know if. John or Mark is in your middle name. Um, and that's just in this small group. I mean, just this three rows, we've got three of us. Good name, beloved of God. How many people could have been called John or Mark? Do we know for certain they're all the same guy? Not saying that I doubt it a minute, I don't, but um, Mark does not say, I'm the guy in chapter 14. So let's not say things that we don't know, but uh, unless we put in a probably. And, and whoever's preaching on chapter 14 gets to explain why that's important. Why did he put that in there? So he knew Jesus was a man. A man whose name means Jehovah is salvation. As the angel told Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a man. He was Christ. The one who fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah because he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God because he was God. Now, did Mark know that at the first time he encountered Jesus? Probably not. But when he wrote this some 15, 20 years later, he had a very complete understanding that Jesus was a man. Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was God. Most heresies down through the centuries have involved the question, who do you say that Jesus is? People say that Jesus isn't God. People say that Jesus wasn't a man. People say that Jesus didn't really die, didn't, wasn't raised from the dead. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, Elijah, John the Baptist, and a prophet. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And you can read chapter 8 or Matthew 16 to get their answer. Parents, your kids have this question on their sheet. Who do you say that, that Jesus is? 
take this opportunity to talk with them about that, about their answer. The right answer, the simple answer, you know, that fills the line, um, we all get that. But do they understand it? Do you understand it? Our salvation depends on the answer. I'm going to borrow words from Eric Raymond of the Gospel Coalition. Jesus had to be truly God so he could satisfy God's wrath and secure for us true righteousness and life. He had to be truly man so he could identify with us, suffering in our place and sympathizing with us in our weakness. I was listening to a conversation this week between an atheist and a Christian, and um, they were talking about being good. And they both agreed that you have to be good to get into heaven. And I'm smart enough not to yell at the radio, so I didn't respond. But uh, I thought, you don't have to be good to get into heaven. You have to be perfect. Good luck with that. God, Jesus had to be God so that he could secure for us true righteousness and life. We can't be good. And we have to be perfect. Only through Jesus can we have righteousness. Next week, Pastor Preston will go a little deeper into baptism and temptation of Jesus. As we see there, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. Okay, verse 2. As is written in Isaiah the prophet... Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, if you have a study Bible, um, either a paper one or online, you probably have a footnote that tells you that... Uh, Verse 2, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Comes from where in Isaiah? Trick question. Comes from Malachi 3. Malachi, whose name means messenger. I thought about calling this message messengers. But then I thought the message is much more important. The king is coming, as we sang. Malachi, whose name means messenger, prophesied in the time after the people of, of Israel had returned from their captivity in Babylon. Been about 100 years. They were still under Persian rule. They were discouraged. They thought everything was going to be back to greatness. Many people thought God had abandoned them. What'd they do about that? 
they started going through the motions of worshiping God. They pretended, but their heart wasn't in it. They were worshiping God with their leftovers, their sick animals. They were saying the right words at the temple, at the synagogue. But the rest of the week, the rest of the year, they lived like God didn't exist. They lacked reverence. They lacked awe of God. This morning in, uh, at 9, we were reminded of, uh, from Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord. And uh, the fear of the Lord is foundational, was the statement made. When we don't have a proper awe and reverence and fear of the Lord, we get sidetracked. So they worshiped without their hearts. Do we ever do that? The messenger in Mark 1 and Malachi 3, the messenger was going to prepare the way of the Lord, the righteous judge who would clean house. While we're in Malachi, and maybe you didn't turn there, Malachi 3, verses 4, I'm sorry, the end of chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, I can't help, you know, remind, these are the last words of the Old Testament. And we'll see, we'll hear of Elijah a few more times in chapter 6 and 8. I can't read verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers without being reminded of Ephesians 6. And in the context of this book, I believe that these hearts turned in the right directions is part of worship, part of proper worship. Uh, Isaiah if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah, as I said before, prophesied about a hundred years before the nation went into the, before Judah went into uh, captivity in Babylon. In 39, we have the, uh, the account of King um, Hezekiah and Hezekiah thinks that all will be well. And, uh, but in 40, God tells Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand 
double for all her sins. The God of judgment is also a God of mercy. The God of judgment wants his people to know he has not and will not abandon them. Verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We picture here a, a road being made that there's nothing to stop, nothing to hinder the arrival of the king. While we're in chapter 40, let's go to verse 28. A very familiar passage. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. I think back to Elijah and Mount Carmel as the uh, prophets of Baal are trying to get that fire to light. And he's saying, call out louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Our God does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His thoughts are higher. He gives power to the faint. Some of us can relate. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. The going will be tough. Even the youngsters will be struggling. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. The Lord will make it possible because with him anything is possible. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Back to Mark. In verse 4, that messenger who comes before the God of the universe, who prepares people to see him, is revealed. John appeared. Have you ever wondered what John the Baptist's life was like? Have you ever wondered, how old was he when he went into the wilderness? Did he know Jesus, his cousin? Did they hang out, his kids? Did his parents die when he was a baby and he never knew any of this story? I wonder all those things and way more. And you know how many answers we find in Mark? None. 
Why didn't Mark tell us what we want to know? Mark tells us John appeared. I mean, you all know, right? John was Jesus' cousin. His mother was Elizabeth. And, uh, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born. And when Mary came pregnant with Jesus, the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. And uh, um, we remember those verses that are told to us in, uh, in other Gospels. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What was baptism? Dunking under the water. And then pulling them back up. I didn't wait long enough for anybody to run out of breath. Did it wash away sin or was it ceremonial? Can water wash away sin? Was baptism a common thing back then? My study says it wasn't common. My study says that... uh, It was done for Gentiles who came into the Jewish faith. It was a sign that they had determined to follow God. Jews were already in the covenant of Abraham. They were born into it. Boys carried a sign of that covenant, circumcision. John is telling the Jewish people that they must repent of their sins, that they don't, aren't in any better, any more possible relationship with God because of their being born in the covenant than the Gentiles who were not. They must repent of their sins and demonstrate their decision to follow God in just the same way. Now, John the Baptist wasn't making a physical road wider. He wasn't knocking down hills and filling in valleys. He was talking about preparing hearts. For a Jew to be baptized, it was for them to recognize that they were, as John said, in need of a savior. That their sins were unforgiven. So John's baptism may have been ceremonial, like that of the converting Gentiles, But it indicated a work of the Holy Spirit to convict the people of their sin and their need for a Savior. Why was John out in the wilderness? 
we can see the place of the see the wilderness as a place of judgment, like in the Exodus, where the people disobeyed and refused to follow God, and God punished them by sending them into the wilderness. But if it wasn't just about that, was it judgment for the people here? It clearly took intention on their part to go to hear this man that people were going to. The wilderness took you out of your routine. The wilderness took you to a place of less comfort. Who was this man? Why should we go hear him? Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah we've been waiting for? Why should we go? What's he going to tell us? Is he going to lead us over the Romans? Is he going to overthrow them? In Matthew 11 and Luke 7, Jesus asked the people, what did you go to see? What were you expecting? Verse 5 says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Did everyone get baptized? No. Some people didn't believe. Confessing their sins. Why did some people not confess their sins? They didn't think they needed to. They thought they were already fine with God. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Why did he live like this, dress like this, eat like this? Is that what we're all supposed to do? You know, we aren't told. But I believe the Holy Spirit told him to. A lot of the prophets were told by God to do things that weren't necessarily comfortable. Made them appear to be odd or at least stand out as being different. God wanted to get people's attention. If you look in 2 Kings 1 verse 8, there is a description there of Elijah. That was 2 Kings 1 8. King Ahaziah had fallen ill, and he asked some of his servants to go and uh, inquire of the priests of Baal to find out if he would get well. They were intercepted by Elijah, who sent, told them to go back to the king and tell him, why are you asking those guys? Isn't there a God in Israel? Oh, and by the way, you're going to die. 
They went back to the king, and the king said, wait a minute, what this guy look like? They said, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And I can just imagine the king groaning and going, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah was known for what he wore. May not be a coincidence that John the Baptist wore the same thing. Verse 7, and he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Jesus will later tell the people that John was the greatest prophet who ever lived. And John says he isn't even worthy to untie Jesus' shoelaces. I read that a rabbi could make his disciples do just about anything they wanted, but they were not allowed to make their disciples untie their shoes. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to be a slave who unties shoes. How big is your God? Do our words and actions magnify, build up, glorify Jesus as the King of kings that he is? Do we think it's okay to take his place? John says in in verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is responding to the repentance of people and baptizing them, acknowledging their decision to turn away from their sin and to turn to God. The Holy Spirit, quite differently, will actually cause people to turn. And he will indwell. He will come make his home inside the man or woman, the girl or boy who recognizes their sin and believes that Jesus is God and the Savior of the world. So what was the message that John was sent to give? The king is coming. Get ready. Our message to the world today is what? The king is coming. Get ready. Are you ready?